0: hello i'm becca the owner of meet cute romance bookshop and this is the meet cute book pod actually this is the last episode of season one of the meet cute book pod it has been an absolute unmitigated joy having had the opportunity to chat with all of our guests and i hope you've had at least half as much fun listening to our conversations as i have had being a part of them Summer is a very busy season for the bookshop, so I'm going to take a break and use all of the podcast prep and production time to make sure our in-store events and summer pop-ups go off without a hitch, but I hope to be back in the fall with season two. If you've missed some of our earlier episodes, now's the perfect time to go back and listen, and if you enjoy them, please continue to share them with your friends and rate and review us on the podcast platform of your choosing. Today, we have my chat with author and editor Camille Kellogg, who works as a middle-grade and YA editor during the day, and whose debut novel, Just As You Are, a queer Pride and Prejudice retelling set in modern-day New York City, came out this past April. Camille talks about the rom-com movies of her childhood and how she ended up as a middle-grade and young adult book editor. Then we get into it about our favorite Pride and Prejudice film adaptations. We talk about the particular joys of writing a retelling and the pain of finding the right title. Camille talks about gender identity as a central theme in this book and discusses her writing process and what it's been like to be on both the editing and writing side of the publishing industry. We get on a tangent about other genre fiction we love and books that have stuck with us since we were tweens. And of course, Camille shouts out some books she's loved recently. And now, through the magic of podcasting, here's my conversation with Camille Kellogg. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to chat.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I want to start by talking a little bit about your background in romance specifically. Did you have a lot of romance reading in your history? Is this a new-to-you genre?
1: So when I was a kid, you know, in sort of middle school and high school, I was not a romance reader, but I was a huge romance watcher. And I had a group of friends, and we would hang out every weekend and we would watch a different rom-com. Um we would watch Sleepless in Seattle or Bridget Jones's Diary or The Notebook if we wanted to cry and we would order pizza and eat snacks and watch these movies. And we loved them. We never talked to any actual boys. Um we just like hung out in the basement and watched these movies. And then when I came out, I realized there weren't a lot of queer rom-coms out there, rom-com movies. And I Quickly ran through the few that I could find and I wanted more. So I turned to books. And that's when I first started reading romance novels. And I read through a bunch of the queer ones that I could find. And then I started branching out and reading straight ones too. And now I am a religious reader, although I still love watching rom coms as well.
0: Well, and that was really like the golden age of rom coms.
1: Yes, it certainly was. And I still rewatch those movies constantly.
0: What is your favorite? Like, what's your go to?
1: I think Sleepless in Seattle might be my all-time favorite. Just the longing and the banter is so good. And the ending is an exercise in you being so desperately afraid every time you watch it that they won't end up together because they miss each other so many times. And you know it's a rom-com, but you start to think like, oh, no, what if they do something edgy and mess it all up? And Even though I've seen it a hundred times, it's still so satisfying when they get together at the end.
0: I think that's really the sign of a good like a romance novel or a rom-com where you're like you know it's gonna end well like that's a genre convention but also
1: you're not you're not convinced like you know but you still don't believe it yes you start to be worried like what if this author is making a point or what we'll has some sort of agenda and is gonna ruin everything at the last minute yeah and are we making a statement because I don't want that yes I can too stressful Um, And I hope to fill my readers with the same kind of fear.
0: (laughs) In addition to being a writer or sort of prior to being a writer, because this is your debut, you also work in publishing. You're
1: an editor. Did you always want to work in publishing? Yes. So I am a young adult, middle grade editor. I edit books for 8 to 12-year-olds and 14 to 18-year-olds. I was an English major in college. I was always that kid. I always had a book. I was always writing. I would read at the dinner table I loved books. And so when I went to college, I studied English and I studied creative writing. And I definitely knew that I wanted to write, but I knew I didn't want to just write. I didn't feel confident enough in my writing skills. And I didn't trust myself that if I, you know, finished college and just tried to sit down and write my novel, I was pretty sure nothing would come out and I would waste a lot of time. So I knew I wanted a job. And around that time, I had a friend who had interned at a children's publishing house and was studying to be a teacher. She gave me two young adult novels that she'd been reading. And I read them and I was absolutely blown away because when I was a kid, every book was about a straight white character with very few problems. I mean, most of them were orphans because that's what happens in middle grade books and when you go on magical adventures. But she handed me these books, and they were about people of color, people with severe mental health issues, people figuring out their queerness. And I realized kids' books and young adult books had just expanded so much from where I was when I was a kid. And I realized if I'd had books like that, I think I would have had a very different childhood and a very different life. And I would have figured some things out about myself much sooner. So I really fell in love with the possibilities of those books. And I decided. I wanted to help bring books like that into the world and make sure every kid could see themselves in books. And now you are. And now I am. Yes. I graduated college and I moved to New York and I was very scared, but thankfully I found a job and... I originally started working in children's celebrity books. That was the job that I got. So I worked on a lot of picture books by celebrities and graphic novels by YouTubers. And over time, I worked my way over to the fiction side, which is what I do now.
0: That is a specific niche that I did not realize existed.
1: Yes, very few people do it. It's a small market. But celebrity picture books, you know, Jimmy Fallon has one of the best-selling picture books. (laughs) Anyone can do a picture book if you're extremely famous. <laughs> Something to aspire to. Yes.
0: <laughs> All right. So you were an English major and Just As You Are is a Pride and Prejudice retelling. Yes. What is your favorite film version of Pride and Prejudice and why?
1: An excellent question. I might get some hate for this. It is the 2005 Karen Knightley version. Gasp. I, I know people love the BBC version. It is so long. <laughs> It is eight hours. Um, The Keira Knightley version, to me, is just perfection. I saw it in the theater. I'm in middle school. I fell in love. I just thought the soundtrack is so beautiful. The filming is beautiful. And they do such a good job of showing the chemistry between the characters. I love that movie so much. I watch it at least once a year.
0: Okay, my admission is that I... Had like a weird specific dislike of
1: Karen Knightley, and so I have never seen that version. Oh my god, you are so missing out! Um, first of all, I can't believe you hate Karen Knightley. I love her. I saw her in *Bend It Like Beckham*, and I have loved her ever since. Um, so I deeply appreciate every movie she's in. But it is so good, even if you don't like Karen Knightley. I did
0: like her in *Bend It Like Beckham*. I think it was it was a *Pirates of the Caribbean* issue, and then I just I. I don't know. I developed some sort of weird specific dislike. I think I need to get over it.
1: It's been like 20 years. I think it, it might be time. But sometimes that happens. I can't watch Timothy Chalamet movies after seeing him in Lady Bird. He was just so perfectly annoying and gross in that movie that I can't separate him from that character, which I know is unfair, but I can't stand him now. He'll survive. <laughs> yeah, he's doing fine. He's, he's doing all right. Are you listening, Timothy. <laughs> Um,
0: all right. Well, on that controversial hot take about your favorite pride, I don't think that's controversial. I think it's only
1: controversial to me. (laughs) Are you a fan of the BBC version?
0: I am. I will rewatch it. I haven't like in a, in like a year, so it's time, but during law school, I think
1: I rewatched that like every few months. I, uh, it's also good. I love Colin Firth. He's amazing in everything, but I don't know. Keira Knightley is my Lizzie and I will never part from that.
0: I actually, just really like Jennifer Ely, and I think it's a great Mister Collins. But yeah, I I'll I'll watch the Keir Knightley one. I think it's it's time.
1: I think I should rewatch the BBC version because I don't think I've seen it since I was in early high school, and I think my level of patience and appreciation might have changed since then.
0: I reread Pride and Prejudice right after watching it once, and it is like maybe the most. True to a book adaptation of anything I've ever seen, which has a time and place
1: and is not necessarily a good choice for all things, but I really liked it for this particular one. I think that's part of what I didn't like about it because I read this book so often. I'm kind of either reading or listening to the audiobook on a constant loop at all times. but I am so familiar, I can quote full lines along with the audiobook. And the movie, it most of the dialogue is pulled directly from the book. And I find myself going, okay, speed it up here. (laughs) We all know what's coming.
0: That's funny. All right. Well, I guess we agree about the adaptation and we just have different preferences for how they are done, which is extremely fair. (laughs) So now that I know you have an extremely intense working knowledge of Pride and
1: Prejudice as a book. Perhaps too strong of a working knowledge. (laughs) There is like a joy
0: to a retelling where you get to play with relationship dynamics and like social dynamics when you're resetting something in a different time period particularly a book like Pride and Prejudice which is really making a lot of commentary about the time that it's set in um one of my favorites in this book is this complicated like queer friend pining situation between Lydia and Katie who's Kitty what was your favorite retelling twist that you did
1: That is also one of my favorites. That was one of the first twists that came to mind when I was trying to reimagine these characters for a modern setting. Because having one character who follows another character around and worships them and tries to be exactly like them, to me, just feels like such a baby gay experience. And such a, I'm in love with this girl who treats me poorly. And... It just feels like it strikes at the heart of your first queer, big queer crush. So that was one of the first twists that came to mind. Another one that I really love is the name of the magazine, which is The Netherfields. Of course, named after Netherfield, which is the house Mr. Bingley rents in Pride and Prejudice. And when I figured out that is the name of the magazine, that's the moment when I was like, oh, this could actually work. I might actually be able to pull this off. It just clicked so perfectly. And I started to see the whole world kind of coming into place because having these roommates who all work together creates such a great dynamic when the two owners, the new owners of the magazine come in and buy the magazine. I feel like it creates a nice, replica of the social conditions of the original Pride and Prejudice, where you have these m- two very rich gentlemen. And that is in many ways hard to replicate in a modern society, but having them come in and literally control everyone's livelihood all of a sudden felt like to me, it recreated the social pressures.
0: Yeah, I think it really did. I was like sold when I got to Netherfield and I was like, yes, okay, I'm going to enjoy this. <laughs> a thing I think that makes a lot of sense also is the bright queer found family as the sort of Bennett family. That's not like a groundbreaking choice, but it worked really well. I wonder, have you seen, I'm sure you've seen Fire Island?
1: Yes. I loved that movie so much. It was so good. It was so funny. And I also thought it was so much deeper than I was expecting. It had so many like social commentary themes in it that I was not expecting. I loved it.
0: I think it's my favorite film. That is actually maybe the answer for my favorite film adaptation of Pride and Prejudice.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that is actually a very strong contender. I was only considering the faithful adaptations when you asked, but that is definitely one. And I have to shout out Bridget Jones's Diary, too. Of course, a modern classic.
0: <laughs> um, okay, I'm interested in the title. You have titled your book Just As You Are. Almost every Pride and Prejudice romance novel adaptation is like Pride and something, and this is not that. And I'm curious, like, what was the thought process there? Where did it come from? Did you have a different working title?
1: So I really wanted to just call it Pride, but there is a young adult retelling Pride and Prejudice with the same name, uh, which is wonderful. So I didn't feel like I could call it that. I struggled a long time with a title. And when I pitched this book to agents, it was actually under what is now actually a terrible title. And I can't believe I got any offers, but I was calling it Queer as an F.U., because there's a meme that's like, not gay as in happy, but queer as an F you. And it doesn't exactly scream rom-com, but somehow I managed to get an agent anyway, who kindly told me that that was a terrible title. And at that point, I made a list of maybe 100 queer puns. They were almost all puns. Things like, queer we go again. Um, <laughs> terrible titles. And where I landed was Just As You Are, which is actually... Speaking of Bridget Jones's diary, a quote from that movie. Because Colin Firth says to Bridget Jones, I like you just as you are. And I really liked nodding to another retelling and another classic rom com, but I also thought it really encapsulated what I want readers to feel, which is that you can be loved just as you are, and you can find romance and a happy ending without having to compromise any part of yourself or make yourself smaller to fit into expectations. And these are two people who are very different, but who learn to be themselves with each other and to find love because of that. So once I found the title, it kind of clicked together. So Darcy
0: is a romance mainstay, like book boyfriend, non perel like everybody loves Darcy. That must be an intimidating thing to tried to sort of recreate in a retelling. Daria is very hot. I think you did a great job. How did you go about like creating her, crafting like a modern day Darcy?
1: Well, I love Darcy. Darcy was kind of my crush. I tend to like grumpy, talk slightly toxic men. I really loved the Phantom of the Opera guy and Heathcliff and Wuthering Heights. I had terrible taste in men when I was a a kid and a teenager. So I have always loved Mr. Darcy. And I knew that I wanted my Mr. Darcy version to be tall, dark, and handsome in the same way that Mr. Darcy is tall, dark, and handsome. I also knew that I wanted her to have a reason for being closed off and a bit of an asshole at the beginning. And to me, the obvious reason was this is a butch lesbian who has had some tough times being accepted and has had to really fight for who she is. And once we crack her shell open and see what her past experiences have been that have made her this way, it makes her a lot more understandable. So her character kind of came to me a little bit full-fledged. I also knew that I really wanted her to wear amazing suits. I created kind of just the lesbian dream that I think everyone wants, um, which is just amazing suits, amazing hair, extremely attractive, and will fight for you and do so many things for you. And once you have her on your side, we'll be completely on your side. Which leads right into my next question,
0: which is that gender expression is a running theme in this book, particularly for Lizzie. Um, which I think plays interestingly into sort of like original Lizzie and the way that she was or wasn't pushing against societal norms. And it's also something we don't see a ton of in adult romance. I think there's a lot more of that in YA. But when did that show up for you as like central to the story?
1: Um, I love that shout out to the original book because the original Elizabeth Bennet definitely is pushing against the expectations of society in so many ways. Which I wanted to recreate. But for me, it was always really important to talk about gender in this book, in part because gender identity has been a big part of my journey of coming out and figuring myself out, but also because so many of the people I love play with gender in these really interesting and exciting ways. And I have watched so many people I love trying to figure out their gender identity and trying new pronouns and trying new modes of dressing and modes of relating to the world. And it is really hard because I think in our society, we tend to approach sexuality and gender identity with terms of certainty. And people come out as one thing. They say, I am this label. And you don't see the journey that goes into that. And a lot of times people say, I was born this way. I've always known and things like that, which I think makes it. Extra hard for people who haven't always known and have had to try to figure it out. And there's no guidebook to being like, okay, here are the five steps you take when you're exploring your gender. And everyone I know who I've seen go through this has felt a lot of insecurity about whether they can claim a certain label, about whether it's okay to try something out, but not be certain if it's right for you. Um, A lot of insecurity about how they're going to be treated and how people are going to react, a lot of uncertainty about do I really feel this way? Is it a phase? Will this change? Will people treat me differently? And will that make me change my mind? And watching people feel that amount of shame, I really wanted to tell them that it's okay. You know, It takes a long time to figure these things out and you need to give yourself that time and you won't know right away. So it was really important to me to create a character who starts out really uncertain about her gender identity and how she wants to present and doesn't figure that out at the end of the book. She doesn't move from uncertainty to certainty, but instead learns to be okay with uncertainty and to accept that she might never know how she wants to present. And that's okay. And it might keep changing over time. And it's okay to kind of live in that in-between space instead of having answers.
0: Yeah. I love that. I I hear that. I think There's like a complete validity for people who are saying this is something I've like always known about myself. Mm -hmm. And that's like great and true for a lot of people, I think, but also not true for everybody. And then it becomes extra confusing because you're like, oh, well, if I didn't always know, then like, is this even real? Like, what's happening?
1: Yes, exactly. And especially for people who come out later in life who might be 30, 40, 50, 60 and figuring this out, I think it's easy to feel like something is wrong with you for not knowing it beforehand. But everyone, takes their time and we all move at our own pace. And it's hard to figure this stuff out because there's no guidebook. So I really wanted to show that.
0: Which character are you most like and who
1: would you most want to be friends with? Wow, that's such a hard question. (laughs) I definitely put a lot of myself into the two main characters, into Liz and Daria. I think I took traits of myself and put them into both characters and then kind of cranked the dial up to 10. So some of Liz's gender insecurity, some of her uncertainty about her future and how she wants to spend her time, some of her impulsiveness I took from myself and then just really cranked up in her to make her more interesting and add more tension to the plot. And then I think some of Daria's trouble presenting as butch, a little bit of her tendency to sometimes be closed off because of experiences she's had with that, her sort of shyness and that kind of thing, I also took for myself and cranked up to 10 in her as well. So I had fun putting bits of myself in both of these characters. In terms of who I would most want to be friends with, I think Charlotte, who owns the magazine, she is a member of Dykes on Bikes. She goes to all these cool underground parties. She just seems really interesting. I don't think I'm cool enough to be friends with her, but I would like to be.
0: We all have that person. Yes, yes. <laughs> Uh, I want to talk a little bit about your writing process. What is it like? Are you an outliner? Is it sort of organized chaos? How does it work for you?
1: I have a general idea of where I'm going. I don't do the really detailed planning in advance with the character templates. I'm trying to get better about figuring out characters' backgrounds beforehand. Uh, My editor kept asking me really annoying questions like, where did they grow up? (laughs) What do their parents do? What kind of childhood do they have? And I'm like, no, no, no. These people emerged as fully formed adults. Um, So I'm trying to get better about figuring out some of the background details before I start. But I tend to know generally where I'm headed. And then I outline a couple chapters in advance, maybe five or ten chapters at a time, and follow that outline. And leave room for creativity and for diverging from the outline if I need to. And then once I run out of outline, I go, oh no! And then I start outlining again until I have enough to go on.
0: Was it easier or harder, or just different to be doing a retelling, such that you had sort of like a little bit of a um, what is the word? I'm doing a gesture framework, <laughs> a framework, not framework? framework. Yeah, sure. That's a very good framework gesture. <laughs> Thank you. I majored in theater. Um, yeah, to in terms of outlining or creating the story structure to do a retelling versus like. Not doing a retelling.
1: I found it a lot easier actually. When I graduated college, I knew I wanted to be a writer, but I was really focused on my career. And I felt like I, this feels like a tangent. I swear it's going to come back. (laughs) I knew that I wanted to be a writer, but I was having a lot of trouble carving out time for writing. I was so focused on my day job, which I was so passionate about and excited about. And I was also, you know, an adult living alone for the first time, trying to figure out, you know, what to cook, um, going, trying to make friends, enjoying being in New York and being able to go to gay bars for the first time. And I really knew that I wanted to write, but I was not doing it. And I always felt vaguely guilty about it. And like, I should be writing and should be spending time on this thing that I wanted to do. And I would occasionally sit down and try to force something out, but I never got very far. And I always seemed to peter out on the plot. I would have a lot of vibes. I would have a lot of long paragraphs of description, but I couldn't really come up with a good plot to keep a story going. And this idea to retell Pride and Prejudice came from two places, which is one, I really wanted to read a Queer, Proud, and Prejudice retelling. At the time, I didn't know of any, and I was desperate to read one, and I got so sick of waiting for one, I decided to write it myself. Um, and the other was, I thought it would be a really good writing exercise, almost like practice, to retell a story and not have to worry about plot and see if I could do it, see if I could finish a story and come up with my own characters and my own world. So. When I started writing, I challenged myself to do this just for fun and to see if I could finish it. And I started carving out 30 minutes before work twice a week. And I decided, you know, at least if you do this, you know, you gave it a shot. And if you never write the book, at least, you know, you tried instead of always thinking, oh, I could have written a book if only I had made the time. Um, Once I had the time set out, my schedule for it was doing it regularly. It turned out I really loved it. And it made me happy. And it was just a nice way to start my day. So I started doing it every day before work. And pretty soon I was doing it more. And then the pandemic hit and suddenly I had a lot of free time. So I did it all the time. But making having that framework to go on was very helpful in showing me that I could do this because I don't think I believed that I could. So you are also an editor. Mm-hmm. Has
0: that affected how you approach the writing or like either the write the drafting process or like the working with another editor on your book process?
1: It is so odd to be an editor working with an editor. (laughs) It's a very strange experience. Because I get notes and I look at the notes and I think, "Ooh, that was a good way to frame that point. Or, oh, that was a nice way to sugarcoat it. I'm going to steal that. Like some of the techniques my editor used on me, I'm like, oh, I'm definitely taking that. I think there's also a little bit of an ego thing, though, when you're an editor and you're getting edited yourself. It felt like karma, I have edited so many people and made them put all this work into their stories to make them better and getting notes and having to go off and do the work myself definitely felt like I deserved it. Um, And I realized that it's hard to revise and it's hard to get notes from someone and to not take them personally and to process them and to see the point they're making and then to go off and spend a month or two doing that work and bringing that point to life So it definitely gave me some really nice insight into what it's like for my authors when I work with them. So I definitely learned a lot from this process.
0: Did you go through like the regular submission process to editors with an agent? So you had to like live that end of it also?
1: Yes, I did. Another great learning experience on how terrifying it is to be a writer and what it feels like to check your email 300 times a day. I started out by pitching agents. I think Pitching agents is the one place where being an editor was really helpful, not because I knew people, but because I pitch books all the time for work. I write the description that goes on Amazon, the description that goes on the jacket flap. So I have a lot of practice distilling books down to their essence and trying to make them sound enticing to readers. So I wrote the pitch for my book and I actually sent it out only to agents I didn't work with which really limited my pool, but I was very terrified at the idea of getting a rejection from an agent and then having to work with that person every day for many years. So I tried to only pitch agents who do adult books because I'm on the children's side, which limited my pool a little bit. And I definitely missed a couple people and ended up sending queries to some people who had just started working in children's and who I now get submissions from, but they were all lovely. So it worked out. It was a scary experience but actually the first agent who requested my full manuscript once I sent out the query ended up th- being the agent I went with. I submitted to a couple others and talked with them, but she read my book so fast and was really passionate about it and we really clicked.
0: Yeah, I can't imagine like the sense of like, "Hi, I'm I'm here in a different capacity. Please um please read this." Yes.
1: The awkwardness of having to be like, hi, I know we work together, but here is an email to your generic inbox instead of the one where I email you every week. And please don't judge me because I wasn't sure if my book was terrible. I actually didn't tell anyone I was writing a book because there is a real taboo in the publishing industry about being a writer because a lot of people will go into publishing because they want to be writers and not because they want to be editors. And so when I was looking for a job, everyone I talked to said, if you want to be a writer, don't mention it. Lie about it because you won't get a job because they'll think you're just in it to become a writer. And I really was passionate about being an editor. So I didn't mention that I wanted to be a writer too. But when I was working on the book, I think a lot of authors find community on Twitter and to writing conferences. And I told no one. In fact, when I got my agent, I went to dinner with a group of friends. I was like, hey, I have something to tell you. I wrote a book and I have an agent and we're sending it to editors. (laughs) What? They didn't even know that I wanted to be a writer. So it was a very shocking reveal.
0: That's delightful.
1: And it worked out. So look at that. Yes, it all worked out, luckily.
0: (laughs) Did you intentionally write an adult book to sort of split it away from your Pidlet editing work?
1: Yes. I did that in part. I don't know. I've never been drawn to write YA or middle grade, even though I love it so much and I love to edit it. It feels so separate from what I do for work. But I also really liked having that distinction and having a little bit of space because now I get to bounce back and forth and I get to read YA and then I get to go and read romance and it feels like two separate worlds, which I like.
0: What was the hardest scene to write in Just As You Are?
1: The hardest scenes to write are, for me, were the early ones when Liz and Daria hate each other, and but then are just starting to soften towards each other. And there is a pool party scene, which I wrote to replace some of the balls in Pride and Prejudice. And the two of them walk on the beach. And I must have written that scene 15 times. They were in the Hamptons, they were in the Rockaways, they were in Manhattan going for a walk. I kept changing the setting, I kept changing how it happened, I kept changing what they talked about because that was the moment when they went from hating each other to slowly starting to soften towards each other and realize they had a lot in common. So there was so much riding on that one big moment, and it was so hard to pull off, especially because the main character. Di- still dislikes Daria, but Daria has already softened towards her a little bit because of an earlier scene. And having the main character recognize that Daria is acting different while still being annoyed and making sure they don't soften too much too fast was such a delicate line to walk. Yeah, that does sound tricky. <laughs> I hope I pulled it off. Eventually, I got to a point where I was like, I can't write this scene one more time. This is what it is. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs>
0: And what was your
1: favorite scene to write? So my favorite scenes to write were any scene with the roommates. The four roommates, to me, are just the heart of this book. They are the found family. They are the friends. And they have such good banter and chemistry. They all know each other so well. And they tease each other. And they're dropping all of these fun queer references, pop culture references, queer brands, queer media. And I had so much fun writing them. This book was actually 130,000 words in the first draft. I cut it down to 85,000 for the published version. So there's a version that has 50,000 more words, and almost all of them are pure banter between the roommates. They would just hang out and talk about their love interests and talk about gender and their careers and nothing would happen. There was no plot at all. And I had so much fun writing every single scene. Bonus Christmas novella? Yes. If people like novellas where nothing happens, they will love this.
0: That's what Christmas novellas are for. (laughs) Nothing happens.
1: Everyone's just like,
0: oh, we're all free and hanging out in the same place for this whole week. Like, great.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And then we get to see them banter and update us on where they are in their lives. I would read it. Honestly, I would too for all the books that I love.
0: So, romance is a very tropey genre. Pride and Prejudice retellings are almost their own sort of category, I think, <laughs> at this point in romance. But do you have any tropes that you particularly love to read and would really
1: love to write or would like never attempt to write? I love Enemies to Lovers. As you can probably tell from this book, that is one, the sparks and the chemistry in the moment where they stop hating each other just enough to realize how similar they are is so satisfying to me. I also love In Only One Bed. It just, it gets to me every time. You know there's only going to be one bed, but you're still excited about it. I think one that I would love to pull off, I don't know if I could, is that trope where one character gets sick and the other character drops everything and misses some important event to rush to their side. Very specific trope, but to me, that makes me bawl every time. I'm just sobbing my way. Emily Henry had it in one of her books, and I sobbed like a baby. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a good one. It's just it's just so sweet. Mm-hmm. And it just shows it's more than just, you know, sparks and that initial new relationship energy chemistry. It shows that deeper bond building between the characters and oof, it gets me.
0: Also, taking care of sick people is the worst. So if are <laughs> like, yeah, I definitely want to hang out with you while you're like pretending the flu is killing you, you know, like that's really saying something.
1: That's true. I feel like rom-coms gave me an idealized version of what it would be like to be taken care of by someone when you're sick or to take care of someone. And it's not as fun as they make it seem.
0: No, if I let you near me when I'm sick, like I like you a lot because I'm like, no, I'm going to go into a cave and like emerge when I'm healthy and no one will know what happened.
1: That's true. I do think it's easier to be the person taken care of, than to be the sick person who's like, it's okay, you can see me while I'm gross and blowing my nose every five seconds.
0: Yeah, like no one gets to see that. (laughs) So you're a writer, you're an editor. When you're working on your your editing brain, how do you figure out what books you want to be working on? Like, what do you look for? What do you love to work on?
1: What I look for more than anything is voice. Um, My first boss in publishing always would say, You can fix plot. You can't fix voice because you can make suggestions for plot. You can say, what if he dies here? Or what if the ship actually sinks? Or what if everything blows up? You can make all these big dramatic suggestions or little suggestions that go a long way. But if you don't like the way that someone writes, just the way they describe things, the tone, the narrative voice of the piece, it is really hard to fix that because that's usually the way the person writes. So what I look for is a voice that really pulls me in. And even if the plot is really meandering and needs a lot of shaping to get it where it needs to be, if I love the way the writer writes, then I know we can get there. I do middle grade and young adult. I mostly describe my list as for underrepresented and reluctant readers, especially when you can combine the two. So it's really important to me that every kid be able to see themselves in books. So most of my books are by underrepresented authors. But I also really want to make my books fun for kids to read because there's so much competing for their attention these days with TikTok and the whole global situation and school. They have so much going on. And in order to make them sit down and read a book, I feel like that book needs to be really fun. It needs to be fast paced. It needs to have a description that pulls them in right away and gets their attention and makes them want to keep reading and stay focused. So I look for really fun page turnery plots. And I also try to sneak in the more serious themes and issues like Underneath that big, big fun plot, I always look for my books, usually have some substance to them, but it's often hidden under a slightly shiny surface. So I have a book that is coming out next week, actually. It's called Sing Me to Sleep. It's by Gabby Burton. It's her first book, and it is about a siren who murders men. And she works as an assassin, and she ends up as the bodyguard to the crown prince, who is hunting for an assassin who's plaguing the city and she has to help him. But what he doesn't know is the assassin they're hunting for is her. And it's just such a fun setup for drama. But it also has all these really great messages about empowerment and race and government and oppression and whether you can fix a broken system or you need to start over. So it has all these serious themes, but it also has this romance and very exciting will she kill him or end up with him plot I mean sold <laughs> it is excellent highly recommend
0: I I am honestly I buy the books for our store and I was looking at front list catalogs and I was so mad we we sell YA but not like a ton of YA mm-hmm. and I there are just like I was like, I can't buy all of these YA books, but like, (laughs) there's so much good stuff happening in YA right now, particularly in fantasy romance, which is like really popular in adult. But I think like the books are, they're, they're coming now, but they're not like, they have not quite arrived. Like I see them on the horizon, but there's like YA is doing it. Yes.
1: I feel the same way. I Love fantasy, but I didn't know growing up that I loved fantasy because so much of adult fantasy is these really thick, impenetrable, heavy world-building, eighteen points of view books written by men, and there might be one female character in there, and she's really hot, and then it's seventeen male characters. And I just read N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth trilogy, and then every book that she's written because it was so good, and. I don't want to read fantasy by men anymore. Being able to read fantasy and see myself in it, it is so good. And fantasy can be so incredible. And I didn't know that for a really long time. So YA was the first place I really fell in love with fantasy.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think a lot of the readers who grew up with more YA than you and I did, I think we're like of similar age where it wasn't quite the thing it is now. But readers who grew up with it, who are like in their early or like mid 20s, are looking for that in the adult space, like that same vibe and it's coming, but it's not, there's not as much of it as I wish there were.
1: Yes, it is coming. And I'm very excited for all of it.
0: Yeah. I also like, you have to really talk me into reading a book by a man. Like, <laughs> you know, there's just like, I'm not going to be able, there's a lot of books in the world. I'm going to miss a lot of them. I'm just going to, as a default, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a pass on the ones written by particularly white men, like straight white men. You know, if it's really good, someone will definitely tell me about it. I'm not like at
1: risk of missing it. Yes, it's true. You're never going to miss a book by a straight white man. It's going to be on the front of the New York Times so many times. You will get it. But yeah, it has to be really good. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, it's taking the spot of another book. Yeah, I'm reading,
0: I'm on like a science fiction kick right now. Um, And I've always been a science fiction person, but it suffers from much the same, like, thing that fantasy often used to suffer from, which is, like, the, like, straight white man syndrome. But I'm reading, I just breezed my way through all six Murderbot books by Martha Wells, um, which if you haven't read, five out of six of them are novellas. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're, like, the entry point's really easy so good i'm currently like keeping myself from reading the advanced copy of seventh one because like i don't need to and i should read something else um and now i'm doing the long way to a small angry planet which is becky chambers um which is like a very weird like cozy space situation so
1: oh that sounds so good um i will have to read Murderbot right now i'm reading our wives under the sea Ooh, i've seen that i haven't read it yeah i don't know if it's science fiction or fantasy or just its own. I think it's somewhere in the horror space, um, which is interestingly about a woman whose wife works in a submarine that gets lost on the sea floor. So it's an interesting time to be reading it right now.
0: Yeah. Wow. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Um, one of my booksellers was was pitching that to me as because um, they're like a big horror reader. That's their sort of other genre in addition to romance. And I Horror is the one part of genre fiction I'm not particularly well versed in, and and they're kind of like, okay, but if you're gonna try like a horror book, <laughs> like try this one. Um, so I might it's on my list.
1: Yes, I really want to try horror, but I'm so nervous because I have such a vivid imagination and things really stick with me, and I haven't done that much horror, so I don't know how I'll react. But I'm a little nervous about sometimes you read a description in a book um, and it just stays with you and you think about it over and over for the rest of your life and I don't know how many of those I can take
0: yeah are you a person who when you read you see like the movie of it happening in your mind
1: I definitely see glimpses and I can definitely oh there's a scene in Emily Danforth's adult book where there are yellow jackets in someone's mouth (sighs) and Bites down by accident, and I swear to God, I think about that once a week. <laughs> Just oh the, what it would feel like. I'm so sorry that I did that to you and gave you this horrible gift. She wow, was a very vivid writer.
0: I had not honestly considered that aspect of of reading horror, and now I am a little bit worried about it because i I like really, it's it's there for me, and it will stick around forever. I am still scarred by like books I read when I was
1: twelve. <laughs> Yeah, well, the ones you read when you're 12 especially stick with you. Those, ooh, yeah, stuff of nightmares. What is a book from when you
0: were 12-ish that really has stuck with you?
1: Well, Pride and Prejudice I read when I was 11 for the first time. So that's a big one. But Coraline, we read in my fifth grade English class. And it was kind of a controversial choice. And some of the parents were upset that we were reading it because it was so spooky and unsettling in places. And I loved it so much. And I was really eager for books that showed me the strange parts of life and that showed me some creepy things and that looked at people who weren't, didn't quite fit in the mold. And I was obsessed with it. And we read it in English class. And then I went out and tried to buy more of Neil Gaiman's books. And I bought American Gods. And I was 11 or 12 and I read the whole thing and I did not understand a single word except for that scene where a man gets eaten by a vagina. And I have vivid memories of reading that and being like, oh my God, the world is a very different place than I thought it was.
0: That's amazing. I love that one of the books that stuck with you, you read in school. Like that's that's great. Like I would love more English classes to be assigning books that are really books that will stick with people. Like I, I guess I read a Sherman Alexie book in like ninth grade and that stuck with me, but that was the one they had like a slot where English teachers got to like pick a wild card book.
1: Mm -hmm. And that was
0: my English teachers wild card book. Whereas like books, I, I mean, I don't know. We read like Catcher in the Rye. It was fine.
1: Yeah. I don't think the Odyssey did much for me, but I really think we should be teaching contemporary books contemporary YA especially in schools because it makes it relatable to kids but fun fact the 5th grade english teacher who assigned coraline was at my reading at politics and prose in dc and was there and we took a picture together and i signed her book and i was able to tell her how much i loved her 5th grade english class and how much it meant to me as a weird 5th grade kid and it was such a special moment
0: oh my god i'm like going to cry that's the best thing i love that so much I I love my best friend is a teacher and like teaching is so hard. Oh, and I love like any time somebody actually gets to like tell their teacher how much they meant to them, like, oh, I love it.
1: Yeah, it was so great. Shout out to Miss Almagor. Being a teacher is so hard. As an English major, that was definitely one of the big options available to me. And I don't think I have the self-esteem to stand in front of a group of teenagers all day. They are so creative and insightful and devastating with their insults, and I just don't think I can do it. <laughs> you know what? That's extremely fair, and I think a really important thing to ask
0: yourself before you go down that path.
1: Yeah. You need to have a thick skin and a healthy dose of self-confidence.
0: <laughs> Is there anything you can tell us about like future books in the works for you, either as a writer or an editor, that you want to shout out?
1: Yes, So in terms of being a writer, I have two more books signed up with The Dial Press, um, who published the first book. The next one comes out in 2025. It's called The Next Chapter, or at least it's called that right now. And it is about a butch lesbian who works at an independent bookstore. And she meets a famous actress who was a child star and her career is now starting to flounder now that she's not a child anymore. And she has recently realized that she's queer. And so her manager decides to rebrand her as a queer icon and decides that she needs a girlfriend to start that process. So they meet in a bookstore, have a cute book recommending meet cute. I got to shout out a lot of my favorite books in the first scene. And then some fake dating happens. Oh, I love that. That's such a great
0: justification for fake dating. (laughs) Because it's so like it's both real and snarky.
1: Yes. (laughs) Is it real? Is it fake? It walks that fun line that you want for a rom-com.
0: I think there's still a lot of fake dating going on in Hollywood. I feel like that is still really actually a thing.
1: Yes. One thing I learned in the past few years is that tabloids. Most of the time, the star has called the paparazzi themselves to come take the photos of them. So that definitely comes to play in the book.
0: There's like all those photos of Sean Mendez and Camilla Cabello, like walking around with like mugs, just like indoor mugs, but like in the outdoors in Florida oh, during the pandemic. Pose. Definitely pose. No one brings their mug outside. <laughs> so, so wild. Like what a, just a weird personal detail. Like Do you live in the, like nobody, it's an indoor mug. Like I don't even think of it as possible to take outside.
1: Maybe they don't even care. Maybe they just, they can replace their mugs at any time. So they just drop them in the trash can when they're done. But it's so impractical. (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't know. Sometimes I'll take my coffee outside, you know, if I'm like on vacation and drink it in an outdoor mug. And even that feels wrong. I'm usually two feet away from the door. It still feels wrong. Okay, well, 2025 is like basically
0: tomorrow in publishing years. Yes. (laughs) Um, So that's exciting. And anything on the
1: editing side? Tell me again the name of the book that's coming out next week. So next week, Sing Me to Sleep comes out, which I am really excited about. I also had a book that I edited that came out at the end of May that I love so much. It's called If Tomorrow Doesn't Come. It's a young adult novel. It's about a young queer teen who in high school was in the closet, was a star soccer player and a student, had the perfect prom date, was a leader in her church, and then is from a very working class, small town background and gets into an Ivy League school. And her parents sacrifice a lot to get her to the school. And she gets there and she is absolutely floundering. She is not performing well on the soccer team. The classes are way too hard. Everyone there is really rich and went to some fancy school and school feels easy for them. And she feels like she has no idea what she's doing and she's completely disconnected. And her best friend who she's in love with is off in New York, having a great time. And so the book actually opens on the day when she's planning to kill herself. And before she does it, she finds out that an asteroid is going to hit Earth in nine days. And, She decides that she can't do this to her loved ones who have just found out that everyone is going to die. And so she needs to make it through just nine more days. And she meets back up with her family and this girl she's in love with. and It's really a book about learning to save yourself and how even when it feels like there is no future for you, like nothing is possible, you can't possibly ever find a future for yourself, it's still worth saving yourself. I love this book so much. It sounds so depressing, but it is so hopeful and beautiful. And it's about queer first love and it's just beautifully written. So I cry every time I think about this book.
0: (laughs) I feel like I know a lot of people who, when we were like first years in college, would have really felt seen by a book like that.
1: Yeah. I think it's a really common experience to be told it's going to be the best experience of your life and to get there and feel so disconnected especially if you're at one of these fancy elite schools and you don't come from that background.
0: Yeah, especially you're you were big fish in a small pond and now you're like just a regular sized fish in like a really big pond. And that's like a tough transition I think for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So those are the two books that I first acquired when I started at my current job. So publishing is so slow. It takes two years. So these are the first two books that have come out. Um, And then I have 10 books a year um, from now until 2027. And it's so exciting. I, I am so lucky. I hope you feel that way. But getting to work with books, you know, it can be exhausting, but it's so rewarding. And I love being able to hand stories to people. Have you read anything lately that you want to shout out? What I've read lately, I've just read two romance novels that I really loved. One was Chef's Choice by T.J. Alexander. I'm trying to remember. They have two books in this series. One is Chef's Kiss and one is Chef's Choice. (laughs) The first one is Chef's Kiss and the new one is Chef's Choice because
0: we're doing it for a book club next month.
1: Okay, great. I'm so glad you knew. (laughs) Chef's Choice is so good. It's a tea for tea cooking romance. Um, And then I read another book that comes out, I want to say in October. It's called Love at 350 Degrees by Lisa It's about a lesbian in her late 40s, I think, whose kids convince her to go on a cooking show where she has some sparks with the grumpy butch judge. I loved it so much. I literally was reading it on the elliptical at the gym. It was that good. Uh, it was just like the most soothing. It was like watching an episode of The Great British Bake off I felt soothed and the sparks were really nice. And I highly recommend both of those books.
0: The queers love a cooking romance. Like, do you know how many queer? And it's not a complaint. Like, I love it. But it's really funny. Like, if you want a cooking
1: romance about straight people, like, that's actually, I have to, like, work a little harder to find that for you. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like fully half of the queer romance novels that I could name off the top of my head are cooking novels. And I don't even like to cook. And I love these books. I've gotten so into cooking romance just because they're all so good. Yeah, no, they're great. I mean, keep them coming. Definitely. Well, thank you so
0: much for making the time to chat. This has been delightful. I am so glad. This is our last episode of the season and also a Pride Month episode.
1: So it feels very appropriate. Thank you so much. This was so fun. Thank you for having me on the podcast. And this was such a great conversation. I'm honored to be the season closer and I'm going to go watch the BBC Pride and Prejudice. Let me know if you watch the Karen Knightley version and if you can get over your hatred of her. I think it's time. I'm gonna I'm gonna put
0: it at the top of my movie list. We all need to grow someday. I know it's important. It's an important growth phase for me. And there you have it. A huge thank you to Camille Kellogg for finally convincing me to watch the Keira Knightley version of Pride and Prejudice. If this conversation has made you want to pick up a copy of Just as You Are. You can do that in our shop or on our website, meetcutebookshop.com. If you've been enjoying this podcast, I would so appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review it on the podcast listening platform of your choosing. It helps other people find us, and as I mentioned, this will be our last episode of the season, but I wouldn't complain if we pulled in some more listeners before we kick off season two. And that's all for this episode of the Meet Cute Book Pod. Thank you so much for joining me this season. I'm Becca, the owner of Meet Cute Romance Bookshop in San Diego, California, and I hope you've had some fun and maybe learned something new in our deep dives into romance writing, reading, and publishing.